that song, <laughs> that song's fault. <laughs> what I like about that song is that it really kind of has a lot to do with my message today. It's about how we see things. When we're in the midst of a darkness, when we're in the midst of a struggle, it can feel like we're all alone. Like the world is way too big and way too hard and I have no idea how to get through. But it's such a lie. It is such a lie. Not only will he rescue you, he already has. He has rescued us completely. And we need only really to remember his heart for us. That he never leaves, he never forsakes, and he always, always rescues us. Always. He loves us too much to do nothing. <laughs> He's always doing something because he loves us. Father, I thank you. I really, really thank you. You are our life. You are our everything. You are good and faithful. You do love us with an everlasting love. And we are never out of your sight, and we are never out of your care, and we are never outside of your help. You are the answer to every dark night. You are the answer to every hard struggle. You are our answer. And Father, we thank you that you are so, so faithful, so, so loving, so kind, and so, so gentle, and so, so tender, because of your amazing grace and unconditional love. Father, I ask that you open our eyes this morning to see your heart for us. Because when we see your heart, it changes ours. When we see your heart, the light dawns and the darkness fades away. When we see your face, it changes everything. We are strengthened, we are helped, we are encouraged, we receive everything we need when we look into your face. And we thank you, we so, so thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is, Oops, now what? <laughs> you ever say that? Oops, now what? <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you about the oopses that happen in the life of every believer. The oopses are the mistakes, the failings, the sins, the, the transgressions that every Christian commits. Sometimes we sort of accidentally fall into these sins, and sometimes we are provoked into these sins, and sometimes we just jump headfirst right into them on purpose. <laughs> I know you don't, but it, sometimes it happens, you know? <laughs> so as a New Covenant believer, what happens when I sin? Will God punish me for my sins? What exactly am I supposed to do about my sins? Well, for years, as a born-again, spirit-filled believer, 
I was taught that it was my responsibility to get every sin under the blood, quote unquote, and to obtain forgiveness for each and every sin. I was taught that the only time my sins were washed away all at once was when I first came to Christ and became a born-again child of God. After that, it was the same for new covenant believers as it was for old covenant believers. I was taught that every sin needed to be confessed in order to transfer the guilt of my sin to my sin offering, Jesus. And then God would cover my sin with the blood of the Lamb. Got to get that sin underneath the blood, right? <laughs> and then God would forgive me and make me right with him again. I was taught that until I confessed my sin and I was truly and sincerely sorry for it, that I was temporarily separated from God and his blessings, and maybe even from the Holy Spirit, depending on how bad my sin was. And even worse than this, I was taught that if I died with an unconfessed sin in my life, that I would go straight to hell. So of course, at bedtime, I always had to add to my prayers, and please forgive me for any sin that I forgot. Please forgive me about the ones I'm unaware of, because I really am sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I wasn't paying attention. I'm sorry I fell into sin. I'm sorry. I really am sorry. I was very sorry that I was always disappointing my father and always messing up my salvation <laughs> by not remembering my sins. There were many times I actually thought, I should have just waited till I was on my deathbed <laughs> to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. That way I couldn't be in constant jeopardy of messing up my salvation. I actually envied people with deathbed conversions because God forgave them of their sins one minute and took them to heaven the next. They had no opportunity to mess it up. <laughs> I thought I should have just waited, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that way I wouldn't be in constant jeopardy of messing up my salvation. You see, I really didn't understand that salvation in the Old Testament was actually very different from salvation in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God could only deal with the symptoms of man's terminal disease. Mankind was terribly sick with the power and presence and nature of sin. And all they could produce on their own was evil and selfishness and death. Genesis 5, 6 bears this out. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. So that's when God decided to start over <laughs> with Noah and his family. <laughs> When mankind is left to himself, he only produces evil and suffering because he is self-centered and has no well of goodness within himself to draw from. Without being connected to God, man is incapable of producing true goodness. Even mankind's goodness usually has a self-focused reward. For example, years ago I heard a lady on the radio who is explaining why she goes all out for Christmas for a poor and needy family. When asked why she would do such an extravagant thing, she said, because it feels so good. 
what does it have to do with them? <laughs> you see, mankind is able to do good, but he usually does good because he receives something in the process. Man is self-focused even when it comes to goodness. So God in the Old Testament had mercy on all of those Hebrews and provided them with a way to live under an umbrella of grace. God couldn't deal with their sickness yet. He could only deal with their symptoms. And so he decided to have grace, yes, grace, <laughs> on the Old Covenant believers. Grace is God's absolutely free, absolutely free, loving kindness. And it was available under the Old Covenant too. God never owed mankind a way out of the law of sin and death. So the Old Covenant was a grace. It was a kindness to the Old Testament believers. They had no other way to escape their sentence of death caused by sin. But the Old Covenant could really only address the symptoms of mankind's terminal disease, which was their sinful actions. Their sinful actions could only produce death. <laughs> so they needed a way to get out from under the constant power of sin and death. So God provided a way for them to atone for their sins through the Old Covenant sacrificial system. We don't really think of it this way, but that was grace. That was his absolutely free loving kindness extended to them. God never wanted mankind to live under the power of sin and death. So he provided a way of faith for the Old Covenant believers. Yes, Old Covenant believers needed faith too. <laughs> All they had to do was bring a substitute on their behalf to provide an atonement for their sins, and then believe that God accepted it on their behalf. The word atone in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary says this. It means to stand as an equivalent, to make a reparation, amends, or satisfaction for an offense or crime by which reconciliation is procured between the offended and the offending parties. I love this, is to have a stand-in, an equivalent. So for the Old Covenant believer, that stand-in, that equivalent was a lamb, an innocent lamb. For us, the equivalent is Jesus. That's the amount of value that our Father places on us. So he says we are as valuable as Jesus. So keeping the law did not require faith. You could do the right things, and not believe. You could do the right things and not trust in God, but believing that God would accept a substitute on their behalf, they had to believe. They had to trust the God to whom they were sacrificing. What they believed was that the offering was God's grace to them to get them out from underneath the power of death, which was the curse. So for old covenant believers, doing the right things kept the power of death at bay. And doing the wrong things resulted in the power of death being able to overtake them unless they brought an acceptable substitute to take their sentence of death in their place. This was grace. They didn't have to live under the curse. They didn't have to live outside God's goodness and care. God knew they couldn't keep the law perfectly. That's why he created the sacrificial system to get them out from under the power of death and into the power 
of the blessing. So the old covenant was really a sin management system. It was the way that the Hebrews could manage the terrible results of their sins. Their sins always produced death. They produced the curse. Stick to the blessings. Do the right thing and you're blessed. Do the wrong thing and you're cursed. God didn't want any of them living in the curse. (laughs) He wanted them all staying in the blessing. But he knew they couldn't. (laughs) So he gave them this grace, this substitution. The old covenant was not designed to deal with their true problem their sin nature. (laughs) It was designed to manage and alleviate the results that their terminal disease produced. The disease was sin in their nature. And that sin nature produced sinful actions, and their sinful actions brought forth the power of death, in other words, the curse. (laughs) And the only remedy that they had available to them was sin management. (laughs) but even within the sin management system, they could still choose to follow God's voice, believe what he said to them, and live in his blessing. In Exodus 19.5, it says this, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. The word translated as obey is actually two words, hear, hear, in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, to repeat a word twice meant to emphasize its sense of perfection. So we could say, if you will hear perfectly my voice and keep my covenant. The words hear, hear include the idea of to hear, to listen, to understand, to give attention to, and to respond to. But the emphasis is always on hearing. (laughs) not undoing, hear me, (laughs) hear what I'm saying to you. There actually isn't a Hebrew word equivalent to our English word obey. Every time you see the word obey in the Old Testament, it's actually the word shama, which means to hear. You see, I like this because forever I thought doing was the problem. (laughs) Hearing was the problem, or the lack thereof. My point here is that this kind of hearing referred to more than just hearing what someone read aloud from the scriptures, even in the Old Covenant. It was hearing the voice of God for themselves. Now, we know God spoke to Moses and David and all of the prophets. So hearing God was definitely a real possibility for Old Testament saints. We see that God even spoke to a child when he called the prophet Samuel as a young boy. Even though they didn't have what we have, we see over and over throughout the Old Testament that communication with God was indeed possible for those who sought for it. The Father even told them in Jeremiah 29, beginning with verse 10, this, For thus says the Lord, the Lord in all caps is his name, his personal up-close name. It is the covenant name. It is the I'm your father name. It is the I am everything you need name. It is the name Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, the covenant God, who when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, the up-close and personal covenant God. <laughs> plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. 
You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I love verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It's not up to us to find him. It's up to him to make himself found. <laughs> I will be found by you, declares the up close and personal covenant keeping God. And I will restore your fortunes. I will restore what you've lost. I will restore everything that Satan has taken. I will restore and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, the up-close, personal, covenant-keeping God. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God said he would make himself to be found by those who seek him. That's one of my favoriteest scriptures. <laughs> so often Satan tells believers that God is far away because they have sinned. And he can't be found, even in the old covenant, even in the old covenant. I will be found by you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will be found. I will restore. It's who I am. I love that one. <laughs> but not only is he found by those who seek him, but he's also found by those to whom he is seeking the Holy Spirit is always at work opening the eyes of those for whom Christ has died. It is not his will that any should perish. He wants everyone to find him and to know him. So he is going after the people you love. He will be found by them. He will make it so. He's the one that does that. Of course, we also see in Exodus 20, verse 19, that not many of the old covenants people sought for this ability to hear God for themselves. In Exodus 20, verse 19, it says this. It's speaking about the Israelites. The Israelites said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. <laughs> the Israelites feared God, but they didn't love God. And they didn't want to know God for themselves. God wanted so much more for his people than they wanted for themselves. So God provided a way of escape from the power and presence of sin in their life. He provided the atonement system. Their atonement system provided a way for God to set aside their sins so they wouldn't be counted against them. <laughs> so that they could be at one or on good terms with God. In other words, their sins would be covered over by the blood of an innocent lamb, thereby fulfilling the law of sin and death. Sin brings forth and requires death. God doesn't bring forth death. Sin brings forth death. <laughs> death is an enemy. <laughs> it's not God's weapon of choice. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says this, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. God told Adam and Eve that when they chose not to listen, <laughs> chose not to heed what God told them, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. Sin brought forth death, not God. <laughs> Sin brought forth death, which God defines as being separated from the life of God himself. In other words, they became zombies. 
I like that. <laughs> because it's really a good description of what they were. They were the living dead. And they could not find life. They were the living dead. Adam and Eve and every human being born thereafter were disconnected from the life of God. So they were zombies too. <laughs> and God didn't want his kids living like zombies. <laughs> and that's why our Heavenly Father sent his one and only son to become our Passover lamb. The Passover is a perfect example of what Jesus did. The entire human race was held prisoner by the power of sin in their nature. <laughs> they were zombies, the living dead. They were held prisoner by the power of sin and death. And there was no way to free themselves from this death because there was no way to free themselves from sin. So not only were they zombies, the living dead, but they were slaves as well, slaves to sin. But through the blood of an innocent lamb, God brought the children of Israel out from under the dominion of Pharaoh, Satan, sin, death, and into his own hand and care. God wanted them to be free from both captivity and slavery. He wanted them to know him and his goodness and his grace. But those little zombie people, <laughs> those zombie kids, they kept leaning on their own understanding, even though God constantly offered them grace through faith. For instance, God rained down bread from heaven by grace. They didn't earn that. And he told them not to store it up, but to trust him for bread every day. <laughs> so what did they do? They acted like a zombie. <laughs> they gathered extra manna on the weekdays and stored it up for themselves, and it turned into a big wormy mess. Yum. <laughs> they didn't trust their father's goodness. They didn't trust God's faithfulness. They didn't trust God's grace. Then he told them to gather twice as much on Friday and not to go out and work at picking it up. Love that. On Saturday. Instead, they were to trust what God said. That's such a big statement. Trust what God said and stay home and rest. You would think they would like that better. <laughs> but see, zombies like to work for everything. <laughs> so what did they do? They didn't listen. They didn't hear here what God had said. They didn't trust his word to them. And why didn't they trust his word to them? Because they were zombie sin slaves <laughs> who needed to be rescued from themselves. <laughs> And since God had not yet provided a way for them to be free from their terminal zombie condition, he provided a way for their acts of sin to be set aside. So they wouldn't have to live under the power of death, which was the curse. And they could instead enjoy the blessing of God's presence and goodness. So under the new covenant, Jesus became the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the entire world. Sin singular, not just sins plural. Jesus came to defeat both the power of sin in man and the fruit of sin, which were the sinful actions that brought forth more death into their lives. Jesus dealt with both the root of sin and the fruit of sin. Jesus did this by taking us, our sinful nature, and all of our acts of sin into the grave. And by doing so, God completely delivered us from all the power of sin and death. 
Now we live under a new law, the law of the spirit of life, the spirit of life. We don't have death working in us anymore. It's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life. We have immortality in our spirit. Death no longer has any power over us. You see, our terminal illness was the fact that we were disconnected from life, the life of God. We were all zombies. We were all the living dead. And since the Messiah had not yet come to destroy the very power and presence of sin, God could only manage the symptoms and effects of the old covenant, their sinful actions through the sacrificial system. The true disease, the true problem was not dealt with until Christ. So in order to understand what we're supposed to do about our sin under the new covenant, we really need to understand what no longer applies to us under the old covenant. The old covenant was a sin management program for God's beloved zombie children. He loved them even though they were zombies (laughs) because God has always loved his children. And he still wanted to have relationship with them. So God gave them a way to be able to live inside of his goodness and faithfulness through the terms of the old covenant. But they needed to stay inside the terms of the covenant. (laughs) Do good and live on the blessing. Do bad, live under a curse, unless, unless you brought a substitute to bear your sin away into death. If somebody died in their place, they were free to live in the blessing. This is true for us. We are free to live in the blessing. The downfall was that they were constantly falling short of doing all the right things. And they were always in need of yet another lamb, another sacrifice. And God in his goodness actually hedged them in and protected them by the blood of many, many lambs. There were sin offerings morning and night every single day, in addition to the ones that they were bringing for themselves. And then there was the Day of Atonement on a yearly basis, where God provided them assurance (laughs) that their guilt was covered and their sins were counted as being far removed from them by the demonstration of a scapegoat being led out into the wilderness, loaded down with their sins, never to return and never to be used against them. God wanted them to know that for the whole next year, that was the only guarantee they could get, one year of life. (laughs) For the next year, he wanted them to see your sins have been removed from you. Your guilt has been removed from you. It's going out into the wilderness and it's never coming back. It's never going to come back to haunt you. It's done and over with. All of this was part of the old covenant sin and death management program provided by God to his dearly loved zombie children. (laughs) But the dearly loved zombie children didn't have to act like the rest of the zombie kids (laughs) who didn't know him. He had made a way for them to escape the effects of sin and death and to enjoy the life God wanted them to live. He wanted them to live in his blessing and in his love. But the Israelites, they weren't very good at staying inside the terms of the covenant that brought blessing. They kept giving in to their little zombie tendencies, (laughs) trying to find love and life and blessing apart from God and his ways of doing things. What I really like about, I looked up zombies because I'm not a zombie watcher. And what a zombie is, it is somebody who is raised from the dead. They are the living dead. And what they're doing is they're constantly trying to find life outside of themselves to bring life in. 
That is the old covenant. That is what unbelievers do every single day. They know something is wrong with them. <laughs> they know they don't have life on the inside. And they don't know how to get out from underneath the power of sin and death. But at just the right time, God provided himself. I love that. God provided himself and us a way out of sin management. God didn't want to manage people's sins. <laughs> that was never his desire. God never wanted to manage people's sins. He always just wanted to separate us from them. Because sin is like cancer. It only produces death. And all God ever wanted for his children was life and life more abundant. We can see that God's heart towards us hasn't changed from what it was under the old covenant to what it is under the new covenant. God has not changed. God was always a God of love. God is always a God of grace. God is always doing for us what we cannot do ourselves. That is our God. We are going to run quickly through Psalm 103. This is the Psalm of David. Bless Yahweh the up-close-and-personal, covenant-keeping God. Oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, the up-close-and-personal God. Oh, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. This is the old covenant, people. This was still under the old covenant. Who forgiveth what? All thine iniquities. Who healeth what? All thy diseases, who redeemeth what? Thy life from destruction. He crowneth us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He crowns us with great compassion. He has hedged us in. He has hedged us in his grace. He has provided everything we need for life and godliness. What else does he do? He satisfies thy mouth with good things. I really like that one. He satisfies our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle. What? God wanted our youth renewed? Yes, still does. The Lord, Yahweh God, the up close and personal God, executes righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. It doesn't say he executes righteousness and judgment for all those who are naughty. <laughs> he says, if you're oppressed, it's wrong. It's wrong for you to be oppressed. It's wrong for you to be sick. It's wrong as far as God's concerned. It's wrong. And he says, and I will work what is right in your life. He made known his ways unto Moses. And what was his ways? When Moses said, I want to see your glory, he says, I'll show you all my goodness. I'll show you just how good I am. And his acts unto the children of Israel, what were they? Miracles, one after the other. The Lord, Yahweh, God, the up close and personal God, the covenant-keeping God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. That means he doesn't scold. And that's what I mean. He does not constantly scold people. Even under the old covenant, he says, I'm not going to constantly scold you. Neither will he keep his anger forever. His anger is not in there. This actually says he will not hold a grudge. The translators were trying to help us. <laughs> Even in the Old Covenant, he didn't hold a grudge. Verse 10, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. What? <laughs> what? Isn't that what we think God does? For everything you do wrong, there's a spanking waiting for you somewhere? <laughs> Even in the Old Covenant, God wasn't that way. God does not deal with us according to our sins, failures, and mistakes. Verse 11, for as the heaven is high above the earth, 
In the same way, so great is his mercy towards them that love him. I love the word mercy. Again, when you see it, it's usually the word compassion. Compassion says, I see your suffering, and I'm not going to leave you that way. (laughs) I have come to answer your need. I have come to answer your call. I have come to answer your suffering and remove it from you. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy, his compassion toward them that fear him. When you see fear in the Old Covenant, you have to remember that Jesus turned the word fear into worship. In Deuteronomy 6, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him only. When Jesus quoted it in Matthew 4.10, he said, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We're not supposed to be afraid of God punishing us. We're not supposed to be afraid that God is mad. We're not supposed to be afraid of God at all. We are called to worship who he is. Verse 12, for as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Under the old covenant. <laughs> and like a father pitieth his children, which actually means like a father who has loving compassion upon his children, so Yahweh, the up close and personal covenant keeping God, has loving compassion on them that worship him. For he knoweth our frame. I used to love this verse because he remembereth that we are dust. I thought, I thank you, Jesus, that you understand I'm dust. You really can't expect a lot from dust. So I'm really glad that you're not expecting much out of me because that's me, Jesus. I'm dust. (laughs) I didn't know who I was. (laughs) As for man, his days are as grass, speaking of our physical body, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy... The word here is grace, the seed of God, the covenant love, the covenant mercy, the goodness of who he is, that mercy of the Yahweh, the, the up-close and personal covenant-keeping God. His grace is from everlasting to everlasting, from before the old covenant to the end of the world. His love, his mercy, his grace is from everlasting to everlasting to them that fear or worship him. And his righteousness, I love this one. His righteousness is unto the children's children. You know what that means? God's doing right by my kids. <laughs> Some of the times those kids get away from you. They get away from Jesus, so they think. They think they're running as hard and hard as they can. God says, ah, I'll get them. I will be found by them. I will be found by them. Verse 18. To such as keep covenant, and to those that remember his commandments, to do them. What are our commandments in the new covenant? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in love. That's it. (laughs) Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in love. (laughs) Because in the next verse, the Lord, the up close and personal covenant keeping God hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant keeping God. And his angels, ye his angels that excel in strength. And angels, angels aren't just angels. Angels are messengers. Cindy and Jeff told me a story when they went on their trip to uh, Colorado. And uh, they kind of got lost. There was an angel waiting for them. (laughs) He stopped at just the right place. And ta-da, there was this guy who knew how to get them where they needed to go. and, And they said, thank you very much. And they turned around and he was gone. Was he an angel angel, or was he just an earthly angel, a messenger of God? It can be both. <laughs> it can be both. 
Praise God. It doesn't matter what kind of angel comes to you when you need an angel. God has one. <laughs> Ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, Yahweh, the up close and personal God who keeps covenant. All ye his hosts, all ye his ministers, angels and messengers of his that do his pleasure. Bless Yahweh, the up close and personal covenant keeping God, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In this Psalm of David, we hear God's heart and will for his people, both under the old covenant and under the new. He wants us to know we are loved, completely delivered from sins, transgressions, and iniquities. He wants us to know that all has been forgiven. He wants us to know that all disease has been healed. He has already redeemed us from all destructions. That's the traps and the pits and the corruptions and anything that brings destruction. We have been redeemed out of it all. We have been purchased out from underneath the power of sin and death and destruction. And he satisfies our mouth with good things. That's really important when you're on a diet. <laughs> he renews our youth and he crowns us. I absolutely love this. He crowns us. He encircles us with his very own absolutely free loving kindness, his grace his unmerited favor, his unconditional love, and his very tender mercies, his very great compassion. Again, compassion says, I feel your misery. I suffer with you when you suffer. And I will enter into your suffering, and I will alleviate it. Compassion does not leave us the way it finds us. And neither does our Father. This is our God. This is our Father. This is our Savior. This is our Jesus. And together they have delivered us not only from our zombiehood, <laughs> but from the sin management program too. The perfect substitute has come. And he took all our sin and all our zombiness into the grave, never to rise again. Our old zombie man is truly dead. <laughs> but we have been raised to new life in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We never go back to being a zombie. <laughs> and only zombies are required to use the sin management program. <laughs> Jesus did not come to provide us with a better sin management system. He came to give us an escape, a rescue from our zombiehood. Jesus came to eliminate the root of sin and all of the fruit of sin, which was really all the absence of God. The new covenant is not a new and better sin management program. It's a sin-destroying, raising from the dead program that imparts the very life of God into us. And we see this truth in Ephesians 2. Beginning with verse 4, it says this, But God, and you know, you could say, and Yahweh, <laughs> and the covenant, up close, personal covenant, keeping God, that one who was rich in mercy, great compassion, for his great love wherewith he loved us. 
We can't just run right by that. We need to know why God does what he does. Because he loves us. Even when we were dead in sins. Even when we were zombies. Looking for life everywhere else but him. When we were dead. Living dead in our sins. He hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. All of God's goodness. All of God's compassion. All of God. It is a completed work provided only by our Father's great love for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and not by our confession of sin. Oops. <laughs> Millions of believers have been erroneously taught, just like I was, that we are still in the sin management business. They are taught that God trades forgiveness of sin for confession of sin. And it's a big, fat lie. <laughs> Let's look at the verses following. And by grace are ye saved. Let's look at that. <laughs> it goes on. He hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his absolutely free loving kindness towards us through the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Verse 8, For by grace, all of God's goodness and love, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself. Not even the faith is our idea. It's, he gave us the faith we needed. It is the gift of God, not of works, not because we confess our sins. What? <laughs> Lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, recreated, created anew in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. We are not forgiven zombies walking around dead to God and earning forgiveness by the work of confessing our sins. That's hard if you don't understand that our true problem was our zombiehood. <laughs> Believers in Jesus Christ in the new covenant have a lot of zombie thinking that our sins separate us from God. And that if we want to be made right again, we have to confess our sin. We have to manage it. If that's what we believe, then we actually believe that we have a work that is necessary for us to do in order to be forgiven. And that would not be grace. That would be earning. Do we earn forgiveness of sin by confession of sin? <laughs> no. <laughs> but it seems like that should be the way it should work because that's how it worked in the Old Covenant. No, we are new creations. We are sons of God. We are filled with the very life and power of God himself. We are made righteous in right standing. We are made holy, sanctified unto himself. We are not in the sin management business anymore. So why do so many believe that God withholds forgiveness until we confess our sins? Because the large majority of those in Christ do. And it's because of 1 John 1, 9, <laughs> which says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we have to remember also when this was written. 
it's really important for us to understand historical context. This was written 40 years after the cross and the resurrection. And nobody else, no other apostle, made any such claim. Now, don't you think <laughs> that if we needed to confess our sins to get rid of them, one of the apostles should have mentioned it? <laughs> but to wait 40 years and then bring it up? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this has become a famous verse that has been taught that confession is the Christian's bar of soap. <laughs> it has been used to tell the believer that they need to be cleansed from their sins. They need to manage them. <laughs> Even after they have received Christ and his complete forgiveness for all their sins. All my sins are forgiven, but I need to be cleansed of them. If they're all forgiven, forgiven means to separate from. Okay, they're all paid for. They've been separated from me. Why do I need to be cleansed from them? <laughs> it does not make sense. Does this verse pertain to born-again believers? No. That's why not one other apostle ever said any such thing, because it did not belong to the believer in Christ. This particular verse is actually written to answer some of the Gnostic beliefs that were trying to infiltrate the early church. The Gnostics did not believe sin was real. So if sin is not real, you don't need a savior. <laughs> they didn't believe Jesus was a really a man. They didn't believe Jesus was fully God. There was a lot of things they did not believe and they were messing up the believers. <laughs> So this verse is for those who don't believe that they are, in fact, zombies, the living dead. This verse is for the living dead who don't believe they need a savior because they don't believe that sin is a real thing. And we can prove this by the preceding verse. Verse 8 says this. If we say we have no sin, do you ever met a Christian anywhere who said, I have no sin? <laughs> No, <laughs> the Gnostics were the ones who were saying that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Is that a description of a born-again son of God? Nope. <laughs> the truth, Jesus Christ himself, is in us. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And the Gnostics simply did not want to accept that as truth or Christ as truth. So verse 9 is addressing unbelieving Gnostics, not born-again believers who fall into sin. So does this mean we shouldn't confess our sin? No. It just means confessing our sin is not what makes us right with God. Jesus makes us right with God, not our confession. Jesus and his blood, his broken body, that's what makes us right, not what we do. We should know that. It's not what we do that makes us right. It's Jesus that makes us right. In Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says this, And he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice, for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work of salvation, the work of sin management, was done. 
Sin management is not what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of taking zombies and turning them into sons of God who have the right to rule and reign on this earth. All of our sins were dealt with at the cross, and now our sins are not imputed to us. What? If our sins are not imputed, which means we become legally responsible for them, if they are not imputed, then why do I need to be cleansed? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) We are not held responsible for the penalty of death. What is the penalty of death? The penalty of sin, which is death. You see, the penalty of sin is not a spanking from God. It's not that something doesn't go right on the job. That is not God's business. That's Satan's business. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of love. I put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Verse 18. Now, where remission is of these, removal of sin, (laughs) there is no more offering for sin. Now, see, we would not try to bring a lamb to Jesus. (laughs) But sometimes what believers will do is they'll bring God a confession as an exchange. I will give you my confession if you will give me your right standing. Because they have believed a lie that they are still zombies managing sin instead of sons of God who stand in the righteousness that is forever. We don't trade (laughs) sins for right standing. Jesus destroyed the power of sin. There is no more offering for sin. That means there is nothing more that we can do (laughs) or that we can offer God to make him forgive us. He's not trading confessions for right standing. There is no more offering for sin, not even the offering of a confession. Jesus has already dealt with all of our sins, and there is no need to confess them in an effort to get rid of them. (laughs) But there is something we can get rid of, and that's our guilt. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance in faith. The same thing he wanted to give the old covenant believers when they saw the goat walk away into the wilderness with all of their sins, that's what he's talking about. I want you to know that you know that you know your sins are far from you. You don't have to confess them to try to get rid of them. They're not imputed to you. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We are really good at having evil consciences. Our conscience will tell us we're bad. Our conscience will tell us we have failed. Our conscience will tell us God's mad. Our conscience is a little Pharisee who likes the rules. (laughs) And when we break the rules, the Pharisee gets mad and tells us how bad we are. Not God. Otherwise, why would he say, draw near? (laughs) Draw near with a true heart full of assurance of what, of how good he is and what he's done for us. And our bodies washed with pure water. The pure water refers to the washing of the word. So our consciences need to be washed with the water of the word? Oh, yes. (laughs) We often need to bring our guilt to God so that he can cleanse our conscience. Because the truth is, if we love Jesus, 
Our sins and failures make us feel terrible. <laughs> and really, the confession of our sins is just an effort to relieve our guilty conscience and hopefully prevent punishment <laughs> for what we've done. We can often be like small children saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in an effort to avoid consequences. <laughs> That's not how God works. God is no longer in the sin punishing business either because sin itself has already been punished in the body of Jesus. So we do not have to worry about God punishing us for our sins. And that is really good news. After you say that, you do have to have a little disclaimer here. That does not mean there are no consequences. <laughs> God never said, you can do anything you want that's wrong and there's no consequences. Never said that. Not once. <laughs> Galatians 6.8 For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. God's kind and quality of life. You see, he had to tell them, sin is still a bad idea. Even though it's not held against you, everybody else will hold it against you. Everybody else will object to your sins. So what he says is, if I reap what I've sowed, is it God's fault? Nope. <laughs> but what I love about God is that even when we've done really dumb stuff, he is always in us and with us, trying to rescue us from our dumb stuff. <laughs> he was always on our side. He is always for us and never against us. God doesn't just leave us to fix things on our own. No. He knows we can't fix anything without him. <laughs> he is always our help, always our solutions, always our answers, always our wisdom, and he is always available. So what do I do when I sin? What should I do when I have a oops moment? <laughs> be really sorry. That was my favorite one. I will be really, really sorry. Nope. Promise to never do it again? Nope. Beg for forgiveness? Nope. What should I do then when I have an oops moment? You might be surprised. Rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. <laughs> not because we've done something stupid, but because our Father is not imputing our stupid stuff against us. This will really mess with your self-righteousness. We have a tendency to fall into believing that we are right with God because we're doing everything right. So that when we fall short of God's glorious perfection, and I really do prefer that definition, <laughs> when I fall short of God's glorious perfection, when I sow to the flesh, <laughs> when I do something really stupid or selfish, our self-righteousness gets bent all out of shape and we feel like we are guilty zombies once again. <laughs> so what we need to do is get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus and his finished work. Yes, if you have just blown it, if you have just told off the neighbor, if you have just, whatever it is, you are like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What do you do? Beg for forgiveness. No. Rejoice. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto Jesus and his finished work. We need to rejoice that the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from the power of sin. 
It seems very counterproductive <laughs> when you have just blown it. But we need to rejoice that we have died with Christ and that our Father has raised us to new life in Him. We need to rejoice in the fact that we are no longer zombie kids trying to manage our sins. We need to rejoice that by grace, we are sons of God and called and equipped by the Holy Spirit to rule and reign on this earth. And that includes ruling and reigning over my flesh. I just need to practice more. <laughs> when we fall short of God's glorious perfection, we need to remember who he has made us to be. He has rescued us from all the zombie life within the kingdom of darkness. And he has translated us into the kingdom of love and light where sons of God rule as kings on the earth. We need to rejoice in our Father's great love and great compassion. We need to rejoice that we are never abandoned or expected to fix ourselves on our own. <laughs> we need to rejoice that the sin management days are over with. We need to rejoice that through the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father, we are growing, we are learning how to live and reign as kings on this earth through the grace of Almighty God. When we fall, get your eyes off of yourself and back on to the one where our eyes should be. Because if we had had our eyes on Jesus in the first place, a whole lot less oops going on. <laughs> a whole lot less oops. Because we keep our eyes on the truth of who he is, what he's done, and what he has made us. We are no longer dead zombies managing sin. Jesus destroyed sin. Amen? So, Father God, I thank you that you are good good Father. I thank you that you love us with an everlasting love, without end, without beginning. You have loved us forever in your own heart. And Father God, you have provided for us everything we need through your grace, through your presence, through your truth. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to trade confession for forgiveness that forgiveness is a free gift because of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the only reason we are forgiven. And Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in your goodness and faithfulness. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.